0: Blog Talk Radio
1: We are now about to present the main attraction of our world's main show
2: for choosing King Jordan Radio for Thursday, October 16th, 2014, and welcome to first time ever where we are scheduled to have Tom Mesaro and Joey Jackson. However, Joey Jackson right now has some uh plane delay issues. Hopefully he will call in. For the meantime, let me introduce um guest number one he is out of los angeles he acquitted michael jackson from a to z in 2005 he's a criminal defense attorney and he's back here on king jordan radio uh big welcome to tom
3: meserelle good evening tom how are you hi jordan i'm doing very well thanks for inviting me again always enjoy it okay
4: uh,
2: before we get to Joe uh uh for Joey, as I said, he uh, has some delay problems uh with his travels. Um but I wanted to touch on um some of the uh some of the, the Michael Jackson stuff uh before Joey gets here and then we can sort of go backwards from the original plan. So what I wanna do first is uh go out to the lines And uh, let's take it from there When I say your area code Just tell me your name and where you're calling from And then Mm -hmm. you you can continue Let's go out to 443 Please state your name and where you're calling from You're on the phone with Tom Miserable
0: Deborah from Maryland
3: Hi Deborah
0: Hi. Hi, how you doing?
3: I'm doing fine
0: Oh, it's so nice to speak with you
3: same here. Thank you.
0: I just wanted to thank you so much for all the efforts that you have put with Michael. It has really made
1: me... Uh,
0: uh, I
2: uh, don't mean to interrupt you. Joey Jackson just texted me. He will be calling in in two minutes. So uh, we we can proceed. And you can go ahead with your question, dear.
0: Okay. Mr. Medereau, um, listen to your last, We you were on the show at last, and you did say that you would consider helping the fans and defending Michael's name in these charges against him?
3: Well, uh, what I said was this. Um, You know, I think the lawyers who are representing him are somewhat tarnished because Howard Weitzman, the lead lawyer, settled the Chandler case in 1993 where Michael paid, you know, allegedly close to $20 million to settle that case. And in my opinion, that was the worst settlement in American legal history. And, you know, Weitzman signed the settlement agreement. He appeared at a press conference announcing it. And I didn't think it was really helpful to have him uh, defending, you know, Michael's reputation when I think that settlement hurt Michael's reputation. I think it set in motion a a lot of events that ended up really hurting Michael. So um, what I said was that I would certainly consider it if asked. I have never been asked, but I doubt whether it would work because I would not join forces with Weitzman. I would not report to people that uh, that I think you know, made poor judgment when it comes to Michael, and I would require complete independence. Susan, you and I would have to be in charge. We would have to pick who the lawyers were, and there would have to be an understanding we're not going to pay money and settle it, and they'll never agree to that because I think Brank and Weitzman, uh, if they can't get the case thrown out, and they're trying to get it thrown out, by the way. There's what is called a motion for summary judgment that's pending. They're trying to say to the judge, throw it out. It was filed way too late. And I hope they win that, but if they don't, I doubt whether they would want to relinquish control or authority to me and unless they did, I'm not going to go through some of the politics and the nonsense that have characterized you know Michael Jackson's legal battles you know his whole career and or you know and and would end up characterizing uh, his legal battles even after he's passed away, so yes, I would uh, relish the thought to uh to take it his charges and and put them where they belong, but I doubt whether that will happen because I don't think the people in charge will want to relinquish any control.
0: I agree with you so much, and it just pains me to hear that. I, I agree with everything that you just said. But I'm well, going to keep you. trying. So hopefully we, the fans, can rally together, and it, it's possible. We can just try.
3: Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate your support and your, uh, your allegiance to Michael Jackson. It was a great person.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks, thanks, talking to you.
0: Okay.
2: okay, ladies and gentlemen, now it is for the first time ever. Let's bring on the line with us for the first time ever. He is a CNN slash HLN legal analyst. He comes. He also works out of New York, my hometown, and he joins us on King Jordan Radio. His name is Joey Jackson. Good
4: evening, Joey. You're on the phone with Tom Mesereau at me, King Jordan. How are you? It's a pleasure and a privilege. I'm doing great. Thanks for the great introduction. Listen, how you know that you might be doing a little something in this world is you get to be on the radio with Tom Mesereau and... <laughs> Hey, Jordan, at the same time, what am I doing
2: right? <laughs> Tell me. How <laughs> do I get like to be on the radio with Tom Mesereau and Joey Jackson? That's the question. <laughs> no, am I? Hey.
3: This, is, this is Tom Mesereau. It's, it's, it's a real <laughs> honor to be with Joey Jackson, a great lawyer and, a, and the greatest legal analyst on television. I really do that.
4: Tom, I got to tell you, I I am gratefully appreciative of that, and uh, you are such an inspiration, I have to say. So listen, King, before we get into the meat and potatoes, I got to at least say a few words to Tom Mezzaro. I mean, you know, you've been practicing law for an awful long time, and I think, you know, for a lot of lawyers who are looking to come in and do trial advocacy and trial work, you really set the standard, and what a fine example. You know in terms of taking over a court case, a high profile case, being no nonsense, representing your client, doing it with dignity, you know getting great results for him, and it's just it's a privilege to uh you know to be on with you Tom Tomzza well, thank the you out. very much, yeah baby just you're welcome,
2: Tom, you did tell me that you uh i don't know where one day we were talking, and I said, and you
3: told me uh who's that Joey Jackson guy? is great, uh is that correct? Well, that's absolutely correct. And what Joey brings is, is is a keen mind when it comes to the law and a lot of experience behind him trying very difficult cases. Uh, he brings practical experience. He brings insight. He brings wisdom. And he knows how to express it in a way that really makes sense. He's a, he's a terrific legal analyst and a great lawyer. And I wish I, him the best I, success, and I always enjoy watching him and listening to him. I learn from him every
4: time he opens yeah. his mouth. You know that's so sweet. Now, listen, King. I want you to save this tape. I need you to get me a copy so I can promo it everywhere. Words of Tom <laughs> Mesero to me? Are you kidding? You know where this is going to get me? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it really is question. I'm glad to glad to be <laughs> glad to be on.
2: Okay, I want to start with the uh, Jody Arias retrial of the penalty phase. Uh, Joey, I want to go to you. Uh, Can you give us the latest and uh, give us some commentary about it?
4: Sure. You know, it was interesting because today what we did, King, is we did a segment on, uh, you know, things that were overheard in terms of what the jury was saying. And it was, you know, some of the comments were pretty comical from some uh, potential jurors is because, as you know, the short answer is that they're in jury selection because they're trying to find a mutual jury, an impartial jury, you know, one that can sit in judgment of Joey Arias. And so obviously, as they go through that process, one of the critical questions is, have you, have you heard about the case before? Now, that in and of itself, King, is not what we call outcome determinative, meaning it doesn't determine the outcome of whether you can sit But certainly if you say you have, now the attorneys are going to press you on, well, what do you know about it? Do you have one favor one side? Do you favor the other? How closely did you follow it? Did you hear all the testimony? You know, so um, unfortunately we can't get cameras in the courtroom for the retrial, but, you know, there could be, uh, you know, media personnel in there and they're tweeting out. And so it's very interesting some of the things that are overheard in the courtroom in terms of what the uh, potential jurors are saying, in addition to what they're saying to the attorneys. But, uh, you know, for example, you know, one juror just came out and said, you know, something to the effect of if ever uh, there was a death penalty case if someone who deserved the death penalty, it would be her. Now, while that might be Prosecutor Juan Martinez's ideal juror, it certainly would not be Kurt Nermes or Jennifer Wilmot. Um, you know, but there were comments to that effect. There were also some comments regarding people who say they haven't heard it. You have to question, heard about the case. You have to question whether or not. You know, those jurors are being completely candid, particularly if you're in the Arizona area. I don't know how, you know, you would not have heard it. But we we went through a litany of of various uh, things that jurors have said. And hopefully they'll be able to get, you know, a jury in place. And they are looking for about six or seven alternates. Of course, there'll be 12 jurors who sit in judgment. And just to be clear so that, you know, the listeners understand, they're not retrying, uh, you know, factually the guilt nor are they retrying what they call an aggravating circumstance, which would justify the death penalty. That is, that she engaged in, you know, extremely cruel behavior. They're simply deciding, that is, the jury that they impanel whether or not the death penalty should apply to her. But in doing that, of course, you know, they have to go into, that is, the attorneys, prosecution and defense, you know, some of the underlying facts in the case and the issues and what happened, so that the new jury gets a flavor of what's going to happen. But, you know, we suspect that within the next two weeks um, we'll be hearing uh, a lot about the case, but unfortunately it won't be on tape, um, or if it will be on tape because, of course, it will be taped. The judges aren't allowing it until after the trial is over. So uh, a lot more to come on, Jody Arias. Stay tuned, to say the least. Joey, is it true yes, she's still representing herself? I'll tell you what happened. Initially she was attempting uh, to represent herself, um, and, in fact, the judge let her because there's certainly case law that supports the notion that sure. if a client wants to represent themselves and they are you know, making an intelligent, voluntary, and knowing, you know, uh, waiver to the court that they don't want counsel, that they should be mi- permitted to do it, but it turned out that that was just a ploy because while the judge initially, Judge Sherry Stevens, initially granted the motion of Jody Arias to represent herself Jody, a couple of weeks later, said, "Well, I'll tell you what, Judge, I won't represent myself if you give me a lawyer other than Kurt Nerme." And, and uh, the judge, of course, said, "You know, well, you don't get to pick and choose who your lawyers are. We are we're going to give you someone who you know who's competent, and responsible. We deem him to be that, and therefore he's staying on your case. And plus, it would prejudice you based upon his knowledge of the case and having been there from day one if we took him off." So she then withdrew her request and therefore she will not be representing herself. Kurt Nermy and Jennifer Wilmot are still serving as a counsel. To make a long story short, then, it appeared as though that was simply a ploy to get him, Kurt Nermy, off the case. It didn't work. He's remaining on the case, and she's represented by counsel because otherwise it would be a circus.
3: Well, you know, this was a very tough case to defend, and I thought the lawyers did an excellent job last time. I really do. They were criticized, you know, uh, you know, left and right by all sorts of people. But when you really looked at the facts of that case, the absolute brutality of the of the murder of an innocent young man who really doesn't look like a bad guy at all, and the way the way she, you know, reportedly tried to plan it and then cover it up, and some of the comments she had made to various people, I think they did an excellent job uh, not getting the death penalty.
4: I really do. You, you know, the problem that I had with them, Tom, well, I didn't much, I didn't. have problems with the attorneys as much as i did with the client um you know there were many things that she gave the indication of on the stand that Uh were not corroborated and so for example instances and and it's always a tough line and, and obviously the you know the listeners need to be aware between you know we as attorneys trying to blame the victim and at the same time trying to get our clients off by giving them some understanding of who the victim was and what you know responsibility they may have had for what happened to them but you know when she gets on the stand some of the things out of her mouth you have and it just made me wonder for example the abuse i've endured abuse mm-hmm. and and he broke my ri my finger and he tossed me and turned me and moved me oftentimes as we as attorneys you know came when we put witnesses on the stand and they say those things, there would be, for example, a, a recent outcry witness, there might be someone who mm-hmm. due, there might be a police report, there may be something to document mm-hmm. what you're saying. And so to the extent that she testified ad nauseum about, you know, just picking things out of the sky, mm-hmm. I had to question whether or not the attorneys were in charge or she wasn't charged. Now, clearly, the stakes are very high. We get that. And clearly, her life is at issue you know so you want to do all that you can do but when she was on the stand uh you know just talking about things you have to wonder whether that backfired on her or not so that was that was my uh issue with Julia yeah, and, I, I among uh, yeah, other issues
3: <laughs> this this was a classic case for death and i don't think it backfired because they didn't impose death
4: and I you're got in a you. very
3: you're in a very conservative venue they had to take some risks to to humanize her and convince some of the jury that she didn't deserve the death penalty, and I think they succeeded at it. So they yes, seem yes. very hard they seem hardworking and dedicated to me. I think they had a very difficult client to deal with, given her interviews and the way she behaved. But I think they took risks, and I think they were really, really, uh, you know, passionately dedicated to saving her life, and they did. So I give them yes. credit. They were not an easy in an easy situation.
4: No, they weren't. It's interesting, though, Tom. You mentioned humanizing the client. I always wonder whether that's possible with Jody Arias. Only because one of the major things that was stated, you know, the the problem in covering the case gavel to gavel, it's just that you have to be somewhat credible. And I guess at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, there was going to be a murder conviction. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it's it's sort of like risk or no risk. I think the jury was going to get her only because you have all the prior inconsistent statements. Originally, ninjas came into my house and they did it. The ninjas, you know, they came and they spared my life, but they killed him. You know, and Mm -hmm. I got scotch-free and not a nick on me. It was all him. But then, no, it wasn't the ninjas who did it. I mean to say that he was chasing me, and he went to grab a gun, and he tried to kill me, and I had no choice. So it was self-defense. So there were many machinations. And I think it's true that the the attorneys were put in a difficult position, particularly when, you know, attorneys like Tom and myself will move to exclude evidence Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't come in against the client. But as we know in uh-huh. the Jodi Arias right. case, all of her prior inconsistent statements that uh-huh. she made that hurt her certainly were allowed and otherwise admissible. And so uh-huh. it was very hard. And at the end of the day, I mean, look, they got four jurors to say don't impose debt. Um, but I just have to wonder how, in, in the final analysis, whether that was based upon advocacy or whether it was based upon, because we heard from the jury foreman after the fact, and other jurors, whether they were just smitten with Jodi Arias based upon her look and based upon, you know, uh, her, her sex appeal, so to speak. So it's a tough case. A lot of these tough cases are. But, you know, look, at the end of the day, she didn't get the death penalty, and I think certainly the yeah. investors are credit for that.
3: We'll expand yours. To- you know, Pardon me. Go ahead.
4: I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you a two-parter. Uh, I had Dwayne Cates, uh, uh, an attorney um, from Phoenix, He thinks that they shouldn't have uh, went to the death penalty again. Reason being, it wasn't just like one held out or maybe two. He said the fact that there were four holdouts, that this is a waste of taxpayer dollars, she's going to die in jail. A, do you agree with that point? And B, do you think they will convict a girl? Because as you know, I think there's been less than maybe 20
3: that have been on uh, death row? Well, first of all, I agree that they should not be spending more money on this this, uh, this retrial on, 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 on death. It's a waste of time. You know, this woman is ruined. She's never going to be free again. She's never going to see daylight. Uh, I see nothing really being achieved other than I think the prosecutor had a big ego. I think he was devastated that he was on TV and people wanted his autograph and he didn't get the death penalty. And I think that fueled part of this, uh, you know, Facing life without the possibility of parole is a pretty grim way to look in the future. And uh, she would be very duly punished, I'll tell you, uh, if she's guilty of this thing, the way the jury said she was. I didn't see the entire case. But it sounded like a, a carefully premeditated, carefully thought out, vicious killing with uh, with a lot of efforts to cover it up. Um, uh, I don't think they should spend this money on, uh, on, on a retrial on death. I, I totally agree with him. Um, I'm against the death penalty, so I'm uh, I'm a biased person. Uh, I think the death penalty is very arbitrarily and unevenly imposed. You can have a serial killer in one state get life. You can have uh, a young person with no criminal record in another state gets death, and uh, it's done very arbitrarily. Uh, they're often wrong. Look at Barry Sheck and the Innocence Project, which uh, the kind of great work they've done, showing that people who are who get the death penalty often are innocent. Um, you know, mistakes are made, and you can't afford to make mistakes. Uh, so I don't think the death penalty really accomplishes much. It doesn't seem to deter crime. Every study seems to show that. So I'm against their retrying her. I really am. Um, what was the other you know, question, wait. Jordan? Uh, the was, other so question me, was...
4: Let me, re- let me respond to that before he, uh, before Tom, uh, you know, references your other question. And this just goes to show that that good minds could disagree. Now, here's the point. The point is that, you know, it's not that I'm a proponent of the death penalty. I am a big proponent of justice. And my issue, and you raised the issue about what, uh, you know, Mr. Tate said, and he was making this case a referendum on the death penalty itself. And what my view of the world is that each state has a governor, an elected legislature, and they decide what the policies of that state are. I mean, we know about federalism. This is not a political science discussion. But we have a president in federal, and then we have various states, there are 50 who elect their people. Now, in New York, we don't have the death penalty. In many other jurisdictions throughout the country, you do. I believe it's 32 uh, at least out of the 50 that have the death penalty. And so that the decision about the death penalty, as you know, opposed or unopposed as I may be, is left to the local representatives in the in the states throughout the country. Now, having said that, in this particular case you have to understand, you know, and I say that not you, you, but just in general, that there's a victim here. And while the death penalty, you know, according to Mr. Case, is making a referendum about the death penalty, this case is about Jodi Erickson, what she deserves. And there's a family there. And that family is Travis Alexander. And in this case, unlike many, many other death penalty cases, which I absolutely agree, we have a wonderful innocence project, that innocence project having fabulous lawyers, Who are able to get DNA and determine that someone's not guilty, that there's evidence that would suggest that there's someone else. The death penalty is so final, you can't reverse it. But you know what? That's not this case. In this case, there's compelling evidence establishing what she did. And based upon that, I think the the prosecutor, whether he personally, Juan Martinez, and I don't know, I haven't spoken to him, whether he personally supports or opposes the death penalty, he has two obligations. One, to carry out the law within his jurisdiction of Arizona, and the death penalty is the law there. Number two, the obligation is to to deal with the family. And what does the family think about justice? Now, I'm not suggesting the family should dictate to the district attorney what they should do, but I am suggesting that the family should have a lot of input in terms of what does happen, because he's an elected official. And as an elected official, he needs to listen to what the family's wishes are. And therefore, based upon the heinous nature of this crime, based upon the reality that she did it, okay? She did it. Uh, And that's pretty compellingly clear. I think that it's up to the local officials to make that decision, and therefore, I do not oppose, uh, you know, the prosecutor going after and seeking the death penalty, no matter how much it costs. It's justice. And sometimes, as expensive as justice is and as slow as justice is, it must be served. And so that's... My response to Joe Arias. that,
3: well, he didn't attack me too
4: badly. <laughs> it's never an attack. It's, it's never an attack on the person. It's always about the issue, and that's an important thing in this business because you know I think Tom will agree with me. You know, you have you have a variety of lawyers out there who are very talented, and you know it's not that lawyers are going to agree. Lawyers are advocates for their respective positions, and I think as long as we're able to. Justify our position with logic and good judgment. Then you know no one's right, no one's wrong. You know that's why we have, we have such a beautiful country. We got the First Amendment, and we're able to say what we want. You know, but in a respectful way, and you know, hopefully we can always, always agree to disagree, and we can always be civil with one another. And I think that that's what good advocacy is all about, in my, in well, my
3: view. My only problem, I shouldn't say my only problem, I do think what, what Joey is essentially saying is that legislated revenge is appropriate. And while I, I completely understand being sympathetic to victims' families, I mean, if I, if I were the victim in a situation like that, I'd probably want to strangle the person myself. You know, that would be my emotional and psychological <laughs> reaction. The question is, should the state be in that business? And should public officials who are elected be in that business? Uh, I that, personally don't think so.
4: That that That's a great point, but that's a policy argument that's left to politicians. That's not an argument left to lawyers. If I'm an elected official within a county, I might have my own judgment. In fact, Tom, you and I ask jurors all the time, can you put oh, aside oh. your personal views about, you know, what the law is? And if I tell you that the law is that if you have a .08 of alcohol in your system, right, and you may feel fine, but the law says that you're legally drunk, could you apply that law? To this case. I'm using that as an example of course, George. You know, and if they say no, they get kicked off the jury. So it may be legislative prevent. It might be the worst thing in the universe, but that's the law. And until and and I cannot sit in judgment of what the law should be, um, I don't think any of us can what our jobs are is to apply the law. And in any jurisdiction where you practice, there are rules. That's why we're admitted in various states. The different well, laws like, get admitted like, to practice in, I'd like,
3: like, generally speaking, to know who Joey trusts more, lawyers or politicians.
4: (laughs) I think think a lot of times they're one and the same because of the fact that so many lawyers are politicians. You know, think about it. Think about our past presidents, uh, although I don't think George Bush was a lawyer. Certainly Bill Clinton was. I know Barack Obama is. Um, But it's interesting. Uh, But that's, you know, we could talk about the death penalty and the propriety and the wisdom or no wisdom. But I just, in my limited view, is I don't think Jody Arias should be a referendum on the death penalty. That that ship has sailed. That's the law in that jurisdiction. Like it or hate it, the prosecutor is obligated to follow the law, and that's what he's doing in this particular case by seeking justice for the family. Period. Anyway.
2: Tom, what's the kind of time you told me that somebody representing themselves way back uh, actually acquitted them, themselves. Can you... Uh...
3: Audience, well, I, I, was, I, I was talking about the former New York lawyer, Roy Cohn, who was a very controversial character. He was uh, on the McCarthy committee. Um, uh, he was counsel to Joe McCarthy when awful things were done in Washington, uh, resulting in this you know witch hunt for communists and things like that. He also was a very controversial lawyer in New York, but a very effective trial lawyer. He was actually prosecuted for, I believe it was tax evasion, and uh, he had a lawyer representing him, and he didn't testify. And his lawyer allegedly had a heart attack towards the end, and he got up and gave the closing argument. Um, and uh, he wrote a book later on called A Fool for a Client, explaining you – know, it's a fascinating book, explaining you know what went on in that tax trial. So that's what I was telling you, but, but most of the time it doesn't work. It's not effective. People get up and think they're smarter than lawyers. They think they can get up and just uh, sway people, and they just bury themselves in the courtroom. That, that's the usual result when somebody represents themselves in a criminal trial.
2: Uh, right. It usually doesn't work at all. And uh, do you? Th- there's only been 14 uh, girls that have been uh, executed uh, to my knowledge, and uh, do you think
3: she will get the death penalty, Tom? Well, I'm not there. Jordan, I, I don't know, uh, you know, what kind of a jury they're they're going to end up with. Um, I would only be just, you know, speaking through the top of my head. It's a very tough case. It was a brutal, brutal murder of an innocent young man, you know, who had, you know, just a, a love, wonderful life ahead of him. And from everything I know, was a sort of a fun-loving, nice guy from a nice family. Brutal murder, premeditated. Um, uh, she does it in a timely, in, in a very sort of careful, protracted way. Uh, she tries to cover it up. She uh, uh, thinks she's so smart. She gives all these interviews to throw people off. I mean, it's a, it's a tough case. I can easily see a jury you know, imposing the death penalty, but I think these lawyers did a great job last time of humanizing her. Uh, they have to do that again. They have to show that she's a product of abuse. She's a product of a very difficult upbringing, that she has serious, serious psychiatric and psychological problems and that uh, she won't be a threat to anyone in in prison, and she can actually end up turning her life around in prison and hopefully doing some good. And uh, they have to ask the jury not to give up on her, you know, and not just be vengeful. It's not an easy task, but they did it last time. What do you say, uh, Joey? What's
4: your Uh, opinion?
5: Two
4: two things, just to be clear. There's only two women that are are currently awaiting execution in Arizona, so it's it's applied in very limited circumstances. And, uh, you know, in terms of the quality of the advocacy, I mean, different lawyers do things differently. Um, you know, the result might have been different if um, Tom Hesero was representing uh, Jody Arias in Arizona <laughs> as opposed to that. You should have gotten admitted sure. Pro-Hog DJ, Tom. And just for the viewers' benefit or the listeners' benefit, Pro-Hog means that you can go to another jurisdiction and you could associate mm-hmm. with local counsel and you mm-hmm. could be admitted for the specific purpose of doing, you know, a trial. And, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of trials you can do in any particular jurisdiction per year, pro vice. Otherwise, you need to be admitted. But in any event, uh, you know, look, the death penalty is very difficult for it to be imposed. I think if ever there was a case that warranted the death penalty, I think certainly that this would be very, very, very high on the list. Um, what a jury actually does, it's very difficult to say, particularly how they broke down eight to four before, eight in favor of imposing death and four against. Because, you know, our system only takes one, and therefore you need to be unanimous. Twelve jurors have to be in accord, in agreement, on the same page, saying, execute her, and absent that, even if it's one. You know, uh, she doesn't die. And so I think it's, you know, it's an uphill battle uh, for the prosecutor, but at the end of the day, this was a heinous, brutal murder, and, uh, you know, sex appeal shouldn't allow her to get away with it. It didn't in terms of the... the, uh, You know, culpability and responsibility, they found her accountable and said that there was an aggravated circumstance, which would justify death, whether they're able to flip the switch is always another question. So we'll be following, and we'll see uh, what she has to say.
2: Yeah, okay, Uh, a caller wants to get in. Let's go over to 352, I believe this is Florida. Please state your name and where you're calling from and what you want to talk about. You're on with Tom and Joey.
6: Yeah, my name is Loretta Leese from Inverness, Florida.
2: Good evening. You're on the phone with Tom and Joey Jackson. Tom has her own Joey okay.
6: Jackson. Please. I got a question. I don't think Jody uh, Jody Arias is going to get the death penalty. I think she'll get life. I want to know what life will be like for her in prison. Will she be confined to herself? Will she be among other inmates? What will life be in, in Arizona State?
3: You know, I don't practice Hell in yet. Arizona. it's Tom Ezer I don't practice in Arizona. I can't tell you exactly what death row in Arizona is like um but um based on what I know about other death rows, it will not be pleasant. um You'll be isolated much of the time um it will be a boring you know uh endless you know days of just uh, very little hope, very little interaction with others uh it could be a very, very, very unhappy difficult way to live
4: no question you agree with that Tom? uh joey i second the motion i second the motion without question strongly
2: okay. uh can you bring us up to date on mr blade runner oscar pastorius himself what's the latest
4: good Pastorius. um <laughs> The latest is apparently it continues. When when I say it, what happens is, is that, as we all know, the judge made a decision. In South Africa, they don't have jury trials. It's a judge trial. The Judge Masipa, in this case, she's assisted by two assessors who render a decision. That, de- that decision has been made, and he was not found guilty of murder, which would mean intent and premeditation. Instead, he was found guilty of culpable homicide. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that through acts of negligence, The judge determined that he's responsible for uh, Riva Steenkamp's guilt, of course, Riva Steenkamp being his girlfriend. Um, the, The prosecution strongly agrees, strongly, excuse me, disagrees with that assessment. They believe it was premeditated. But you know what? That ship has sailed. The bottom line is the judge said you're guilty, but you're guilty of culpable homicide. You were negligent. Now the issue, of course, is the sentencing. And so, therefore, in South Africa, you have a sentencing hearing. At that time, the prosecution is allowed to put on witnesses, and those witnesses on the stand give some indication to the judge of what we call as lawyer's mitigation. What that means in English is why should the sentence be like? Why should the judge impose something that would be non-incarceratory, meaning not in jail? And so that's what we've seen. We've seen the, the uh, prosecutor uh, cross-examine witnesses from the defense, the defense witnesses saying, you know what? He shouldn't go to jail. He should get community service. What was interesting, though, was when one of the witnesses said that, um, the judge said, well, what did you have in mind? What do you mean by community service? Now, that was telling to me in as much as if the judge was not contemplating that, the judge would not have even have entertained it by asking a question, at least I don't believe. I mean, if the judge was inclined just to consider jail, but maybe she's just being fair and reasonable and wants to explore all the facts and all the issues. And uh, there have been some witnesses who have suggested that he should be in prison, that the prison's abusive, that he would subject himself to, you know, different types of uh, gangs that would commit violence against him and that he's disabled and prison's not the place. And, you know, if he was going to be confined, maybe it should be home confinement. Home confinement. So it raises on, and the judge has to continue to listen to that. And the judge, of course, has to listen to the prosecution cross examine those witnesses and the prosecution put on witnesses of its own concerning why a jail sentence will be appropriate now and uh you know it is pretty much it's based on precedent and so precedent suggests that in these types of cases you can get anything from probation to 15 years in jail and so it'll be up to what judge Masipa does she has not done it yet but we suspect that you know any day now she'll be uh She'll be making a decision upon whether Oscar stays home, goes to jail, does community service, you know, or or some somewhere in between. So that's where we are with the Blade Runner.
2: And, Tom, uh, how, what did you feel about the two murder charges, uh, uh, the judge uh, or my lady, as they say it over there? Um, what's your thought on her verdict?
3: Well, I thought both sides were very effective. I thought the prosecutor was very, very prepared, very effective, persuasive. It was kind of abusive and kind of abrasive, but I didn't think that would hurt him with a judge who's probably used to that kind of courtroom behavior. Uh, I thought the defense also were very prepared, very detailed. um, And I thought, uh, I understand her verdict. I was actually a little surprised by it. Uh, I thought, given what what I what I knew about the situation, the the you know the the, the premises where all this happened were, were was very small, very confined. Uh, the idea that he didn't know she was in the bathroom seemed very implausible to me. Uh, the idea that it was strictly an accident seemed implausible. Um, I thought that the uh, the evidence that he's been rather reckless with guns and abusive with guns uh, was troubling. Um, I understand the verdict. Um, I was a little bit surprised by it, but I think she's going to give him some jail time. I do think the defense has been very compelling in explaining that because he's disabled and doesn't have legs, that he will be subject to abuse, to gang rape, to all sorts of problems in prison, and I think that's got to be troubling the judge a lot. Um, Apparently the defense has also put on evidence that he's basically a ruined person in that country, that his employment prospects are, are very poor, uh, his reputation has been destroyed emotionally and psychologically. He's been completely shattered by this. Uh, I think she's wondering whether she wants to subject him to this kind of abuse, if that's all the only option there is. I don't know if there's a way to take someone who's disabled and give them some type of isolated you know, uh, or quarantined um, you know, form of imprisonment. I don't know if that exists in South Africa. But I just believe, based on her comments, that he wasn't truthful, uh, and some other things she said uh, when she convicted him of probable homicide. I got a feeling he's going to do some time. And uh, Joey, what was your opinion on the
2: judge's, aka my lady's, uh, verdicts?
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think pretty much Tom said it all. Although, it, you know, it, it was one of those things that could have gone either way. You know, one of the most fascinating things I found about the law and this is ever since law school and ever since I've seen great lawyers like Tom Ezra in a courtroom just mesmerize people. You know, you have you have two professors, and one of the professors is the prosecution, and they're stating their piece, and they're equally they're strong and they're passionate and they're compelling and they're persuasive. And then you say, wow, that's got to be the case. And then the defense gets up, and they're equally passionate and persuasive and convincing, and you sort of left there saying, boy, what do I do? And in this particular case, I certainly could see merits to both sides. I could see the judge shutting it down and saying, this is premeditated. You know, the four shots were excessive. You know, the cell phones in the bathroom, the argument, the issues regarding the expert, what they found in her stomach relative to when she went to sleep. It would cause to question whether or not, you know, they were up or whether they were really sleeping, as as the hospitalist said. So it's really it's a really hard judgment. I would not have at all been surprised if she held him accountable, uh, you know, to the top count, to the murder count, but I could see based upon her defense and their passion what they brought to it that she could find negligence, which is what she did. And I always was very interested and it fascinated me and it fascinates me to this day about the law, how you know, you have point A and point B and we all may take different roads to get there. But one of the be- great things about the law is, you- if you find a way to logically, to rationally, to chronologically, to just in a very organized way, get yourself from point A to point B, man, you can dig, you can zag, you can swag, you can fall, and I think that's what that's what happened here. The judge said, "Look, I think it's culpable homicide," and she found a way to get from that point, you know, to from the point she was to that particular point. And so, you know, who knows? Justice is elusive sometimes. But uh, right now, I think the justice is hinging upon the verdict that she gives. So let's see whether, you know, her verdict is uh, he goes to jail, or her verdict is uh, that he stays home confinement, or that he gets probation. Because after all, perhaps some of those other factors that Tom mentioned, you know, uh, in terms of whether jail's the place for him with the gang rape and he's subjecting a disabled person to be there and the fact that he's ruined and his reputation, you know, maybe the judge says that that's a significant punishment too and therefore keeps him out of jail. I mean, I would, but uh, that might be something that she finds persuasive to her. Uh, Tom, you agree,
3: disagree? No, I I agree with everything Joey has said. Uh, I think, as I said before, both sides were extremely professional and very prepared, uh, and both were very, very persuasive. I I looked at her background, you know, she was raised in Soweto, I mean, uh, some pretty tough circumstances, and nobody ever handed her anything in life, and she apparently just uh, has devoted a lot of time to uh, being a social worker, to working with victims of domestic violence. I know that she was a a protester uh, who was jailed at one point, and they asked her to clean the bathrooms, and she refused in the jail, and apparently she's just... She was uh, educated, I think, mostly in her 40s, I think, was when she went to law school. And she's a very, very, uh, very accomplished, very hardworking, um, you know, survivor type of judge and no-nonsense kind of person uh, with apparently uh, a history of, um, of uh, great concern for domestic violence victims. So I kind of thought there was a chance she, uh, she would see this guy as a spoiled brat uh, with a sense of entitlement uh, reckless with guns, reckless with his behavior, always thinking he can get away with things and I had a feeling she that might affect her uh her judgment and uh like joey said i there was a possibility she he he was going down for murder. I think the fact that she um uh, you know put all those potentially emotional issues aside and looked at the law and said to herself, Have they proven murder uh and concluded they had not i think just shows what a uh what what a professional judge she is. Uh, careful reasoning, careful logic, following the law to the T. But I, I do think some of the comments she made about him as she imposed, you know, guilt for culpable homicide were a little bit troubling, and I had a feeling when she made those comments that she might whack
4: him at sentencing. So we'll see. And, and just to be clear, just one uh, other quick point regarding the comments I'm um, talking about. You know, she was talking about after the being an evasive witness, uh, and that goes to his credibility. And, you know, so whether she takes that out on him at the sentencing phase remains to be seen, but it was clear that she did have some issues with his testimony as to whether he was being truthful or whether he was, uh, you know, I'll just say being less than truthful. I never like to call anyone a liar. <laughs> so we'll see what happens with that.
2: See, I wanted to talk about the Colorado movie theater shooting. Uh, but I uh, just want you guys to hear this clip so let listeners know what we're talking about. During a fight we'll scene
5: in The Dark Knight Rises, Batman exhorts Catwoman to put away her weapon. No killing, he says. No guns. Sadly, in the Century 16 theater last night, life did not imitate that bit of art, and the midnight premiere of that film became a killing ground. Tonight, families are reeling, a young man is in custody and police are trying to figure out how to disarm the suspects apartment loaded with explosive booby traps ABC's David Wright begins our coverage tonight from the Denver suburb of Aurora. David? Good evening Bill we're just a few yards away from the multiplex where that massacre took place at this hour the coroner is at a local high school with families who have been agonizing all day about their missing loved ones and outside that high school as you can see people are crying. The midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises. Fans across the country, a summons as irresistible as the bat signal. At the Century 16 Theater here in Aurora, the crowd included Jennifer Seeger, seated in the second row. A young couple with their two kids, And Jessica Gowie, a 25-year-old aspiring sportscaster who goes by the professional name Jessica Redfield. She tweeted her friends from inside the theater. Movie doesn't start for 20 minutes, she wrote, excitedly, in capital letters. The last tweet she'd ever send at 11.37. About 12.05, right as the credits started to roll, a man in the front row of Theater 9 got up, pretending to take a phone call. He went out the emergency exit propping open the door behind it, 24-year-old James Egan Holmes was apparently gearing up for an action scene of his own. Police say he had with him a Smith & Wesson assault rifle, a Remington pump-action shotgun, and two Glock semi-automatic pistols. 1239, this was the scene on the screen. Christian Bale acting opposite Michael Caine as Holmes came back through the emergency exit wearing a gas mask. Witnesses say he threw a green canister into the crowd, filling the theater with smoke. Your eyes are burning, it makes you want to just close them, and then you can't breathe, and just makes you want to cough. As though reenacting a scene from a Dark Knight comic, witnesses say Holmes fired into the air and then started shooting into the crowd. The first clear sign of it was when the guy that was sitting right next to me actually got shot in the chest. And all the bullet casings
6: kept falling on my forehead. They were, like, stinging my forehead. At that moment, I just remember thinking... I'm not gonna die in here. Me and my kids. We are not going to die in here. I need to get them out. Um, at that point, he he takes his gun and he walks. He walks a little further. Takes a couple steps and he points it at me. He, at that point, he has a rifle in my face. There's a moment where my daughter tripped and and I just pulled her up and I was just dragging her and I was just thinking we just gotta get out. Just even if I just gotta get
1: out the doors and even if I just fall dead, just just get my kids out of here. It was it was just so horrible. 15, I got seven down in
5: theater nine. Seven down. Police arrived on the scene less than two minutes after the rampage started, but it was chaos. What's
1: happening? Oh my god. I've got a child victim I need rescue at the back door of theater nine now.
5: Yelling fire in a crowded theater may be enough to cause a stampede. Opening fire meant utter pandemonium. We go out
6: and the first thing we see is a 13, 14-year-old girl with a bullet wound in her leg.
5: According to witnesses, Holmes tried to blend in with the crowd. You see, like, within the theater, um, people were just running he was just walking. He was just, just walking.
7: Mr. Holmes was apprehended outside in the back of the theater, and he was apprehended with three weapons.
5: Holmes immediately surrendered. Police observed his hair was dyed orange. He told them, I am the Joker. He also told them the movie theater, his apartment, and his car were booby-trapped, just like the comic book villain would do. A full hour after the rampage began, the story broke over the airwaves. By then, 18 ambulances were there, triaging the victims, and transporting the most serious cases to six local hospitals. Twelve people killed and 58 injured, 70 victims in all. So many, the police turned the back seats of their cruisers into makeshift ambulances.
3: Back is full of blood. I don't know if that matters or not. Full of
5: what? Blood. By 2 a.m., Holmes' apartment block was evacuated as the bomb squad started assessing the booby traps. They were extensive.
7: I see an awful lot of wires, trip wires,
4: jars full of ammunition, jars, jars, jars full of liquid, um, something's things that look like mortar rounds. We have a lot of challenges to get in there safely.
5: Today, inside dozens of hospital rooms, survivors struggle to make sense of all this.
1: It was cold and calculated, definitely. Um, it seemed very methodical, just the rate at which he was firing and how he wasn't really moving position. Um, he was just, like, unloading into into the crowd.
5: And all day long, ten bodies remained inside the building while law enforcement secured the scene. Their families and friends left waiting and wondering. Tell me where he is, okay? Find my son. I don't know where he is, okay? Somebody find him and call us. Tell him to call us. His son never called. Sadly, Alex Sullivan is dead. Late in the day, the authorities finally started to bring out the bodies. Among the dead, Jessica Gowie Redfield, that aspiring sportscaster who was so excited before the movie. Tonight, her mother spoke with Diane Sawyer.
6: My life is forever changed and forever damaged by one person's horrible, violent choice.
5: Astonishingly, this was not Jessica's first time in harm's way. Last month, she happened to be in a Toronto food court when a gunman went on a deadly rampage there. Her friend Peter Burns said that experience led her to make the most of every day. In her blog, she wrote, I was reminded we don't know when or where our time on earth will end, when or where we will breathe our last breath. This morning, when Peter opened up his Facebook page, there was a message from Jessica. It said, Hey, a message she wrote just before it, the movie. You know. It goes, hey, are you guys back in town? You know, just, just it was her checking in. And, and, and by sh- the time you got that message, she was already dead. Yeah. I'm David Wright for Nightline in Aurora, Colorado.
2: Yeah, Story indeed, Joey Jackson. Let me go to you first on this. So what is your take on this upcoming trial? Uh, there's going to be cameras, sure. evidently. me uh, your take on the whole situation?
4: Well, let me tell you this, Jordan. Um, I I have to run, but before I do, let me just say that I'm sickened for the community. I'm sickened for the families, um, and it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that leaves you dumbfounded and speechless. Uh, You know, you can talk about mental health. You can talk about gun control. You can talk about a number of things, but just the inhumanity of what occurred there and the amount of people that were affected and the amount of parents who – you know, won't have children and the amount of people who were killed who won't have children themselves. And, you know, it just had a devastating impact on that community. And I think it was heartfelt by everyone throughout the country. And it sort of really, it really teaches us a lesson. Can we be safe anywhere? If You can't be safe watching a movie with the person you love, with a family member, with a friend, you know, where can you be? And so it's a sad commentary. And I can only hope that, you know, justice is served during the upcoming trial. And uh I don't know what justice is here though. I don't know how you bring someone back and there's not only you know, as it relates to the the twelve dead but the other fifty eight having been injured, it, it just it sickens and saddens me. And so may you know, may justice be done there and I will cede my time to the to the great Tom Mezzero to give you his take. Um, with the remaining time yes. you have left. Um, but I just wanna say this, um and, and I don't this is a very serious topic and I don't want to make light of anything. I just wanna to say to Tom though, that I do have a bone to pick with him because uh how can you get him on your show but I can't I can't get him on H L N. But uh that's a question that Tom's gonna know. have to mention. So but uh <laughs> <laughs> listen,
2: Tom, um,
1: Tom let's do this again up and I'm, I'm, you. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much for uh, making this season three uh, possible. I, I always uh, the fans have asked for it, I have asked for it, and uh, you came through, and you've always came through. You were my very first guest when I first started doing this radio show, and it's great to have you uh, here again. Well,
4: well uh, it's Trump. interesting how I'm your first guest, and then all of a sudden you improve and upgrade the quality of your guest by getting Tom Mesero there. It's just not fair. <laughs> it's not right. But uh um, <laughs> pass along my number to Tom please and well, uh, Tom no we, dis- <laughs> <laughs> we should have a discussion. But again, I know, you know, I didn't mean to do it on the heels of a bar. it's just that I gotta go and um I just wanna convey that and it was my pleasure, it's always my pleasure joining you, uh, Jordan, and it, it's it's just an honor to be on with Tom Ezero. So uh let's let's get him, you know, where I could see him on a screen. But in any event, uh peace, love and happiness to you both. All right? Well,
3: cool. thank you for the compliment, okay. Joey, and I look forward to Seeing you on on HLN and uh, thank you for all the insight and advice. You were just terrific, and your views are uh, very very important.
4: They it's really my are. Honor and privilege, and if we're lucky, we'll get to see you on HLN. So listen, you be well. All right, you take oh, care, both thank you. of you. you God too. bless. Thank you. Bye bye.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Joey. And uh,
2: Joey, uh, ta- uh, you always Tom. You always are a big fan of
3: Joey, right? Pardon me. You always have been a big. Fan. Oh, I'm a um, very good fan of Joey Jack. I think he's a terrific legal analyst. I think he has tremendous insight. I think he has experience behind the insight. I think he combines an academic knowledge of the law and procedure with uh, with great experience. And he uh, he comes across as a very, very wise, uh, insightful analyst. And I don't think there's a better one on television. And, and uh, I've never had the honor of doing a case with him, but my understanding is he's a terrific lawyer. And relates very well to juries. Uh, treats the court and everybody with great respect, and does a great service for his clients. So I think he's a he's a tremendous asset in many different ways. I of course echo what he said about that horrifying you know case in Colorado. I just it's it's terrifying beyond belief. It's almost hard to imagine such a thing happening. And I remember when I was following it, I just uh, was so sick for the, the just so. I just felt so horrible about the families who went to this theater just to have a nice night out. And, you know, their families were just devastated. People killed, people maimed for no reason. Uh, I do think uh, this defendant is seriously mentally ill. And um, I'm sorry in a way to hear about their televising it because I'm afraid it might give this person as sick as he is attention that he wants. I remember, listen, i I was born in New York and raised mostly in New Jersey, and I remember the Son of Sam case years ago where they arrested this guy who was terrorizing the city, and he had a big smile on his face. He really loved the attention. And uh, I fear that this disturbed individual who committed these horrific crimes is going to enjoy the attention, and I don't think that's appropriate. You know, my view of televising trials really depends on the case, and it depends on the role I'm playing. Uh, if I'm a defense right. attorney, of course, my concern is, is protecting my client. When I was defending a, actor Robert Blake in his homicide case, I wanted the, the preliminary hearing televised because I thought uh, we could surprise the prosecution with a lot of uh, a lot of information they didn't think we had uh, and that they didn't have about their witnesses. I thought we could turn public opinion towards Blake, and we actually did. In the Michael Jackson case, I did not want cameras in the courtroom. I didn't think it would help him in the long run. And I didn't want witnesses seeing what other witnesses were, were saying on television and getting caught up in the media service. So, But in, in this situation, of course, I don't have a role in the case. Um, I'm just kind of disturbed that this sick individual who committed these crimes is going to get a lot of attention and like it. That really bothers me.
2: I agree with you 100%. Uh,
3: I do want to go over some
2: things before we get to the calls. Um I niece, uh Perron from France uh, via Facebook. Um, she writes in Tom Mesro is supporting uh, Randall Sullivan. Why? He thinks Michael might have not done it, probably didn't do it. Uh, she says, uh, but doesn't give it, uh, the good vote of confidence. Um, her, her basic question is. Uh, in our opinion, how can you support somebody like Randall Sullivan and some of the things he might have said in in his book?
3: First of all, I interviewed with Randall Sullivan about twenty times, so I got to know a little bit about him more than I do most, you know, authors that I've talked to. And Randall Sullivan uh was known to be a hard hitting journalist. He was known as a journalist with integrity. And he did not start off this book as a fan of Michael Jackson. He started off as very neutral, and he told me he was going to go where the evidence took him. And he examined the Chandler case, and he examined the Arbizzo case very carefully. And in the end, he concluded that from where he sat as an objective journalist looking back, that Michael Jackson was not a pedophile, and that either case favored Michael Jackson's innocence. And I felt that someone like randall sullivan had more of a capacity and uh to change people's minds about michael jackson than someone who who starts off as a jackson fan okay and i felt that randall sullivan you know of being a hard-hitting journalist from rolling stone magazine could go to the people who think michael jackson was a pedophile who think he was guilty and turn them around and I really believe that has happened because I know some people who have read the book who are not Michael Jackson fans who really thought he was guilty, and uh, right. they have now they have now changed their opinion on him because of that book. Now, if someone picks up a book by someone who is obviously a fan of Michael Jackson, you know, someone who uh, who really um, you know shows their praise of Michael Jackson throughout the book, they're going to have less ability. To change people 's minds than someone like Randall Sullivan, and I thought the efforts to suppress the book, which were clearly fraudulent and fake on the internet, were just very disturbing. You know the people that need to be have their minds changed are not the Michael Jackson fans; they already know he 's innocent; they know what a wonderful person he was, but I want, to know, I, I want someone I want someone who can change these closed-minded people who think he was, he was a pedophile who beat the system. And I think Randall Sullivan has done a lot to impress people with his objectivity, with his distance, and with his professionalism. And when he says, I looked at Chandler and I looked at Arviso, and in the end, Michael Jackson was innocent in both situations, and in my opinion, not a pedophile. I think that really does a lot to help his reputation with people whose minds have to be changed. We'll uh,
2: awesome. Okay, uh we do have uh, Luna Joe's birthday today. Uh oh. I want you to uh,
1: Yes.
3: So maybe well, if you birthday. could say happy birthday. Happy birthday to Luna Joe. You're doing a great service to the legacy and the memory of Michael Jackson. Every time you uh you do one of your creative adventures, uh I stop whatever I'm doing to to look at what you've created. I don't know where you get all this information and where you uh, where you get all the stuff you have, but you're you're just fabulous. You're doing a great service to uh, all the Michael Jackson fans throughout the world, and you're really helping preserve the memory of a very wonderful, wonderful person. Happy birthday!
4: And you caught
2: yes, happy birthday. And you caught some of the videos, uh, like the uh, the one that you made for the the last time that you were on this show, and uh, when Gavin Arvisio was testifying. She really does a good job, right?
3: She does a wonderful job, and you know, without the great work that she's doing, uh, a lot of people would uh, would be clueless about what uh, what happened uh, in the life of Michael Jackson, and particularly uh, when it came to his court cases, and particularly with his criminal trial. You know, it's almost it's ten years ago we were in that criminal courtroom battling for his uh, his survival, and Luna Joe has done so much to. Uh, Keep alive the truth and keep alive what exactly happened and what people tried to do to Michael Jackson, and how they tried to exploit him and take advantage of him. I think Luna Joe's doing a great service for people around the world. I really do. Uh, I 100%
1: agree
2: with you on that one. Uh, we have Bo uh, from Australia. He's a huge Michael Jackson fan. Uh, he can't call in, but he really wanted to uh give props to you and uh send uh send his love to you uh, via Australia. So uh there you go.
1: <laughs>
2: well thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. Okay, um we also have let's see Nan Forster via Facebook writes and if you have a chance can you try to ask Tom Mesrow why he didn't call Weitzman in to say why MJ lawyers advised him to settle with the Chandlers, like the prosecution called Larry Feldman and the Francia lawyers to say that they received settlement money.
3: Well, uh, there were strategic decisions I made during the trial uh, that, um, uh, in my opinion, that would not have been a good idea for a lot of reasons I really don't want to go into. But, um, you know, trials are tricky affairs because you can't always predict from day to day what's going to happen. And sometimes you don't call witnesses that you think you've already done well on cross-examination. I thought our cross-examination of Larry Feldman and some of these witnesses associated with these settlements were very effective. I thought um, uh, that a lot of the punch that the prosecution thought they were going to get from witnesses like him uh, was just not there. So my feeling was after we did very well with those witnesses and cross-examination, the uh, the smarter course was to kind of leave that issue alone and go on to something else rather than just sort of prolong it. And uh, fortunately, uh, these decisions uh, were correct. Yeah, and uh, she she also said that reading back
2: so much of the testimony, uh, as she just did the other night, she finds it so mind-boggling to believe even one shred of what Wade Robson is saying,
3: it's it's mind-boggling to me as well. I mean, I couldn't uh, I couldn't phrase uh, phrase it better. You know, I I met with him and I met with his mother and I met with his sister before we called them to testify, and they uh, they were among Michael's strongest advocates, and he's a very intelligent, articulate guy, you know, who was adamant to me in the strongest way that he was never improperly touched, never molested, never abused. And he was so strongly in favor of Michael that I called him as our first witness. I just said, this this is a great way to start a defense case with this man getting up there, passionate,
1: you
3: know, adamant, uh, articulate, intelligent, you know, uh, and he was very persuasive. And, and he was attacked viciously by the prosecutor, Ron Zonen, who's a good cross-examiner. And he would not waver. He would not budge. And to have him suddenly, you know, reverse court the way he has in a civil lawsuit for money is very disturbing. Uh,
2: no question. Let's go out to the phones. Uh, let's go out to 979. Please state your name and where you're calling from. You're on with Tom Mezzaro. 979, it's your turn.
0: Hi, how you doing, Jordan, and Mr. Mezzaro. This is uh, MJ Brookings from Texas. And I I was going to ask Mr. Mesereau some questions, but I don't need to now because he's pretty much covered everything that I wanted to to know. He he started off uh, answering, and he just finished answering, so he's doing a pretty good job without me
3: having to ask anything. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, thank you for calling. Nice talking to you. You too.
1: Okay.
2: Let's go out to uh, New Jersey, I believe this is. 609, please state your name and where you're calling from. You're on with Tom Mezra.
6: Is this me again? Hi? Yes, you're on. You oh, call? Jordan. Jordan, it's Heather.
1: Oh, hi, Heather. Hi, Heather.
6: <laughs> how are you? I didn't know I was going to be able to get on so quickly. You're on. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Tom. How are you?
3: Hi, I'm doing fine. Good. How's everything? Good.
6: Great. Everything's great out here on the East Coast. It's a beautiful uh-huh. night. Um, right. We spoke. We spoke once before, and I was really nervous. <laughs> okay.
3: And you told yeah, nothing, me, to be, nothing to be nervous about, believe me. <laughs> and you told you
6: told me you you told me that I was talking to a fellow New Jerseyman, you know, and <laughs> I and I started to relax a little bit. So, um, anyway. It's great to be on. Um, I came. I started listening right after uh, a couple minutes before Mr. Jackson had uh, had had logged off. You were talking about the uh, the guy uh, with the that the shooting that happened there in the the theater a few years ago.
1: Yes. Yes. You
6: mentioned it. You guys. uh, You know what? I'm I'm curious as to what both of your opinions are. I'd like to know what happened to this kid for him to just wake up and say i'm gonna go i'm gonna do so, i'm gonna go do some shooting for lack of better words tonight I'm curious as to what happened to this kid as to why he did that and if you notice if you notice shortly after that happened, it just kind of died out i, I what happened to him like what
3: you, you know, apparently he was a, apparently he's a person with an extremely high IQ, oh,
1: who yeah, at, he at,
3: at times was brilliant <laughs> uh, in his studies in school. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And um, you know, clearly <clears throat> he's he's got to be mentally disturbed. He has to be mentally ill. He has to be living in some type of fantasy land uh, with some, you know, a lot of paranoia thrown in. Uh, you know, and I'm not a professional psychiatrist. You know, I can't analyze them the way a professional would, but this person has to be very sick to do what they did. He has to be. He has to be living on, in fantasy land. He has to be paranoid. He has to, uh, you know, he must think he's in some, you know, some Batman movie and this is just playing or fantasy or something. But, uh, I mean, I don't know how anyone cannot think this person is disturbed to do what he did. This is one of the most horrifying. Chapters in American history, and the innocent people that he just slaughtered, and
8: mm-hmm.
3: apparently was uh, appeared to be almost having fun while he was doing it. You know, a very sick human being. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah.
6: I, I, I just, I, I could, you know, never. I, I, me personally, I, me and a lot of other people, couldn't understand what triggered what happened to this boy. Like, what? <laughs> you don't just wake up and say, like I said before, you're going to go you know, try to kill a bunch of people and see it. You know, the same thing The same, thing, the same well, thing with the school shooting. Yes.
2: I think he did have this all plotted out uh, according to the timeline. This was done over months and months of time, uh, it looks like. So he, I don't think he just woke up and did this like some of the other mentally ill people. I think uh, from what I was told at least uh, that uh, this was done over a course of six months. But like yeah, Tom well. said, he's very intelligent. Um, I think we have a big mental problem, Mental, you know, people that have mental problems. I think they need help. And uh, <clears throat> that's where I stand with that. Anything else yeah, you want well, to
3: Well, you know, huh? uh, or, uh, under the law, proving someone uh, is insane from a legal perspective is not easy because it's not just a question of being disturbed. The person has to not appreciate you know the difference between right and wrong while they're mm-hmm. acting the way they act, and that's mm-hmm. a very tough hurdle for defense lawyers to uh to surmount and you can You can show that someone is 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 completely bananas uh, but at the same time uh if they appreciated the difference between right and wrong uh the jury is likely not to find them insane. That's so right. yeah. uh, but this man has to be very seriously ill
6: to no, be, has
3: to, to he, well, he has, to be. has to be uh it's
6: just uh it's it's terrible between that and the school shootings that happened right before christmas it, it it i i as i get older man i i i've lost my faith in humanity, which just and i' I'm, you know, I'm a human being, I've lost so much faith in humanity it's 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 disgusting. It's
3: just,
6: I think it's really just sad.
3: Yes, I agree.
6: It's sad. It's a sad world. It's a sad world, man. It's just. But um, I think I guess there's other people that want to call and talk to you, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, Well,
3: very nice to talk to you.
6: Yeah, and again, Mr. Mesero, thank you very much for everything you and Susan Lu have done. She's very very quiet. She she does. She's very quiet. She doesn't like. She doesn't talk like she. Would she ever come on the show? Or?
3: She doesn't like dealing with the media. She's a very private person, um, a just a brilliant, fantastic lawyer. Uh, yeah. When I met Randy Jackson and Michael Jackson in Orlando, Florida, when uh, when I went down to talk about becoming Michael's lead lawyer, the one condition I made was that Susan, Yu has to be my co counsel. And okay. I knew of, I knew of her brilliance, her integrity, her professionalism. And she analyzes every piece of evidence. She knows it backwards and forwards. She knew that case better than the prosecutors did. And I could not have accomplished what I did without her giving me information and helping me on a constant basis. She, you know, she would go sleepless nights just to make sure that uh, those witness books were prepared properly. She, her strategies on how to handle the prosecutors and the witnesses were just absolutely first class. And uh, I'm just very lucky. She was my co-counsel, and I'm lucky she's my law partner in Los Angeles. She's just a fantastic lawyer who consistently gets top results in cases, civil and criminal. She's really amazing.
6: Tom, you and her, you and her, have to write a book. I'll be the first person in the line to get it,
3: and you got to do <laughs> signings.
6: You and her have to write a book.
3: Well, thank you. <laughs> We've talked about it, you know, on occasion, but we just haven't uh, haven't done it. And, uh, you know, I think about the passage of time and just how it's made a lot of things clear that, you know, we're not so clear 10 years ago about various individuals that Michael was involved with, uh, you know, various pressures he had to live under, and probably if we did a book, it'd be a much better one now with the passage of time, I think.
6: Are you kidding me? Do you know, and I, I mean, I know as a regular Joe in society, I already know Several people that he thought were his friends, along with his immediate family, who have turned on him not even a year after he died.
3: Yeah, I know. It's well, I was—I was—I I was, I was there at his darkest hour when, you know, we we talked on many occasions about people he thought were his close friends, he thought well, he would rally to his support, and they were where, nowhere look, to be seen, nowhere to I, be you seen. Know,
6: I, I you know, let me ask you something. Where were all these people that this guy grew up with and came up with? Where is Lionel Richie at?
3: Well, I don't want to name names, you know, in this interview. Where were uh, all these people
6: at? No, 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 they all came out after he died.
3: Yes, I agree with that. And you.
6: that made, I know. that. Oh, that made me. That made me sick. Let me tell you, to this day, over five years later, I still have not watched his memorial, which was more like a concert show in full because it was just, it just it just really disturbed me, because they all came out, oh, you know, I knew Michael all these years, and he was this, and he was that. And I'm like, where were you, 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 and you when this guy was on, on trial for his wife?
3: I, I absolutely sympathize <laughs> well, with everything you're saying. In fact, I, I was watching Larry King after Michael died, and these people were appearing uh,
8: who were yeah, acting yeah. like
3: they were his closest friends, and I knew uh-huh. the truth. I knew how many of them wanted nothing to do with the trial, nothing to do with testifying, and you know it was a it was a very, very sad chapter for Michael in many ways, including finding out that people he thought would be loyal to him and helpful to him uh just were nowhere to be seen.
6: yeah, they were all worried about their career. I wanted to know where the hell Diana Ross was at. <laughs> He well, I'm not, gonna,
3: or... I'm, 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 I'm not going to say I'm not going to name names, except I've I know. said many times that Chris Tucker and Macaulay Culkin
1: yeah.
2: were so yeah.
3: so such stand-up people. You know, mm. Stevie Wonder was stand-up. You know, yeah. we didn't need to call Stevie, but we did call Macaulay and we called Chris, and they told their managers, their lawyers, their agents, their advisors, you know, we're going to go there whenever Michael needs us. No one's stopping us. And these were mm. young guys, you know, successful, popular. Mm-hmm. You know, and everyone around them was nervous about their jumping into this trial except them. Chris Tucker and Macaulay Culkin, I met them separately. I knew that everybody was putting this pressure on them not to come, and they told me when Michael needs us, we're there. These charges are nonsense. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget those guys. I really never will.
6: Yes, that's what you call real stand-up people, real stand-up guys. Absolutely. So there you go. But I'll let you guys go. I hope to talk with you again.
3: Very very nice to talk to you Thank you for calling
6: (laughs) Take care
2: You too Indeed Okay let's go out to 508 Please state your name and where you're calling from You're on the phone with Tom Mesero.
6: Oh hi this is Nancy I'm calling from New England How are you Hi Can you hear me Um, Yes I, I just wanted to call in and thank you for all you do And I also wanted to mention I read the Randall Sullivan book And although I didn't really care for it, um, I did notice that um, Harvey Levin missed it from TMZ, which I thought was really unusual. So I think that somebody else didn't like what he wrote in there either that wasn't a fan. You know, I think it was somebody who had some power. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. I don't think that, um, you know, Harvey Levin would have butt in on that kind of stuff. I noticed he didn't really carry the AEG suit and all that stuff. So, um, well, you know, you know it,
3: it, it's it's an opinionated book and it's a controversial book, and yeah. I don't expect I don't expect anybody to like all of us. Uh right. But I'm looking at things from a particular perspective, and my perspective is that you know these pedophilia allegations uh, were the worst thing to hit Michael Jackson in his lifetime, and there's nothing worse than being called a pedophile or a child right. molester. Nothing worse. If being called a murderer. Is uh, is is in some ways you know more desirable than being called a pedophile, and yeah. so I'm and having had the role I had in his defense, uh, this issue is very important to me. So I'm always looking for ways to persuade people that this very very wonderful guy was not a pedophile, was not a child molester, I could never imagine abducting children, harming children, sexually right. abusing children. And, right. after, you know, after I, reading, and, 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 I, I and I looked at Randall's analysis, and, you know, if you look at one of his footnotes towards the end, he really expresses sympathy for Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know, he, I forget the exact words he, he used, but he said basically, you know, I, I think he was a, a nice person, and I hope he rests in peace. And, you know, I just felt that if enough people read this book and didn't think the book was authored by a particular fan of Michael, that it mm-hmm. might have more persuasive value. Right. And, and that's, that's why I was so upset when certain powers that be tried to bury it Well For the false Internet thing.
6: Yeah, the estate put something out because they didn't like the book, that it was a bad book. And, well, of um, course, the,
3: the, the you know. people in the estate were criticized.
6: Right, and so were the people at AEG. And that's, in my opinion, somebody, not the fans, obviously, had something to do with TMZ getting involved. And saying it was a Yeah, but they, you know, I,
3: mean, I, I, I do think Sullivan had integrity. I think he okay. he approached the subject, you know, not being for or against Michael. I think he approached it with the idea that I'm a professional journalist, I'm gonna go where the evidence takes me. And it ended up taking him to a to a pretty favorable place. Yeah. You know, I mean he uh he interviewed members of the Chandler family who, from what I'm told, mm-hmm. would not talk to anyone else. And he still concluded that I, I think the evidence tips in favor of Michael Jackson. Now maybe he yeah. didn't present it in in these glowing terms that a lot of fans would prefer, but to me the way he did it, you know, as I said many times on the show, has more persuasive value with people who either don't like Michael Jackson or want to think the worst of him. So mm-hmm. I think he, in the long run he did a lot to help his reputation. Okay.
6: Um, Mr. Mizrach, you also since you brought up integrity. Um, I wanted to talk. to you. I, I had watched the Frozen in Time um, thing you yes. did. With the I couldn't yeah. believe it. I mean, the guy that was supposed to be representing Michael Jackson in '93, '94. I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
6: he seemed non-existent. You know, I mean, he was he was like best, I, I, this guy Larry Feldman. I mean, it's amazing how he plays people to me. But I just thought that he totally forgot about defending his client because he was so busy. You know,
3: oh, who were you talking about? Now? Who were you talking
6: about? Car- Carl Douglas, is that his name?
3: He was. He was. Uh, he was in the ninety-three case. That's correct.
6: Right. He was working
3: he with was, uh, with Johnny Cochran.
6: Right, and he just basically talked about how much money he made uh, off Michael Jackson. Talked about this. Talked about. it. I mean, he did nothing to really defend him. At that, the only person who was defending him was you. But at any rate, um, I was. Mister Zonin is a very very bright guy, brilliant lawyer, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. I've read the transcripts. He
3: is. I've never yeah, faced I, a better prosecutor than him. No, but
6: I don't I don't understand why he put his reputation at stake for this. Because, to me, I think they knew before they ever walked in there that the RVs was were lying. I think they knew from who they didn't call and from changing timelines and all that stuff. I mean, they had to have known. And he's up there still. I mean, everybody in that room seemed to be talking like Michael Jackson was convicted, except you. You know what I mean? I just well, I, th- I
3: think I think they convinced themselves that they were in the rights. You know, people have a way of doing that. Human beings have an enormous capacity for convincing themselves of what they want to believe. And I, I agree with you. If you look at things objectively, how could they possibly have thought these people were truthful witnesses? How could they possibly have thought they were going to be believed? But well, I they think they place. said to themselves, you know... Uh, All we need is one count to send them to state prison. All we need is one conviction on one count to emerge victorious. And they felt that, cumulatively speaking, even if the Arvisos had problems uh, and even if some of the other witnesses had problems, this is a very conservative community. These are horrendous, horrific allegations. Uh, As I said before, there's nothing worse than being called a child molester. Uh, and I think they felt that they could at least squeak through with one conviction and send him to prison. That's what I think their attitude was.
6: So, like, I mean, they didn't—they didn't, they didn't uh, try to plea bargain or anything. Stacking all there those was, charges. There
3: was—there were, there were never any discussions about plea bargaining. They
6: just wanted to get him in court and
3: destroy him, so I—I I think, think they wanted—they—they uh, they wanted this big showcase trial. I believe. I think uh, they thought they were going to be stars on the world stage. I really do. Yeah. Uh, but you know something? If they'd even broached the subject of a plea bargain, we would have said no. Michael wasn't yeah. pleading guilty to anything. He wasn't going to no. do that.
6: But you know, I mean, like, um, even in, like even in the AEG trial, I know that Wade Robson came out with this stuff, and you know, I'm not buying it. And it seems to no. me it's very orchestrated. And there's all, you know, there's just so much social. It's just so obvious to me. But that's all, you know, I don't believe him. Put it that way. And, it's, you know, I just wonder who's behind him or whatever. I think probably he failed at, you know, directing, and, you know, he's got a big ego. And, you know, there you go. There goes your career. You're no longer relevant there. So it's got to be somebody else's fault why you faltered. But long and short, Well, it's it's,
3: it's, it's just yeah. amazing that he's being attacked, you know, five years after his death, you know, the way they attacked him when he was alive. It, yeah, people well, aren't giving well, up. They still see this big sum of money around. Well, there's
6: so much money and so much press. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's really sad. But if you look at, but if you, look, I mean, I I not think of Mr. Zonin. It's, he's so smart. He's so bright. The AEG trial, basically, I mean, I know Wade came out with this stuff right before the AEG thing, and it coincided with the um, the Vegas show that he lost, you know. Mm-hmm. And, he, and mm-hmm. Mr. Uh, Frank has said it was over a contract, which
1: mm-hmm. I
6: believe. But long and short of it, it's the AEG trial it cleared him too. Everybody who came in. Said, so, you know, this was all, you know, ridiculous. And his medical records basically cleared. And his autopsy, if you're looking at it, um, you know, it shows he had vitiligo. Look, well, Gavin visa says he was totally white when he mm-hmm. finally remembered that he, I mean, none of this makes, how can Mr. Zonan not see this, even now? I mean, his own, you, life know, you know, he,
3: uh, he, he Ron Zonin, as I've said many times, was a terrific prosecutor. He's a passionate, powerful advocate. He comes across very passionate, very powerful, very smart uh he was I've never faced a better prosecutor than him, um but
8: Wait. he had blinders
3: on he had blinders on and he still has them on he, you know he if you meet him uh to this day, I think he's bitter. He's I, think he bitter. Snidin, I think he and i think he and Sneden think they were cheated out of some great chapter glorious chapter in life that's how i that's I saw, how I do it.
6: I saw Mr. Zonen on some local t v show out of California and I won't mm-hmm. keep you, I know other people want to talk to you, but it was like this little old lady and her husband, and she said, well, I think Michael Jackson was innocent. And he, like, was like bananas on this old lady. Yeah. It was bizarre, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. But I just, I mm-hmm. don't
6: understand how he can marry Louise Palanker, who said these kids were, she said on tape or something, these kids were brought up to lie. I mean, like, mm-hmm. right in your face. I just, you know, I just don't get it. But at, at any rate, I won't keep you. I just wanted to thank you so much for all you've done for him, and other people, too. You know, well thank you so much is. and very nice so. to talk to you. All right, thank you. Bye bye. Bye.
2: Okay, Tom, we have a Facebook question that came in. Uh dialed Facebook wants to know uh about the case in Pennsylvania. If you heard they're allegedly trying charging a ten year old boy uh as an adult for killing a ninety year old person A, did you hear about that? And B, what do you think of the charges?
3: Well, I heard about it, but I don't know anything about the facts. But the idea of trying a 10-year-old boy as an adult is very, very upsetting to me. Now, I don't know who this boy is. I don't know exactly what this boy did or why he did it. But, you know, I I look at my life and, and how many things, you know, I've had to learn every step of the way, and I'm still learning. You know, And and the idea that a 10-year-old is supposed to know who they are and have a a mature perspective on themselves and life, I just don't see it. I think he should be tried in juvenile court. I think they should make every effort to rehabilitate this person. Um, To try a 10-year-old as an adult and then throw the 10-year-old, if he's convicted, in, in adult prison is absolute barbarity, in my opinion. But I don't know anything about the facts. I don't know... I just saw the uh, a little blurb on it, and that's all I know. But ten-year-olds should not be tried as adults. They should not be punished as adults. They should not be treated as adults. They're ten-year-olds. They're kids. That's how I see it.
1: Right.
2: Okay. Uh, just a few t- things here before uh, I let you go. Um, the uh, the case out in uh, St. Louis, uh, Michael, uh, is it Michael Brown? My think Mike Brown. Um. Give me your commentary on that whole situation that went down uh, not, not, not so long ago.
3: Well, again, uh, I'm not there. You know, I haven't seen the evidence. I'm very disturbed by what I've heard. Uh, something just seems off. Uh, there just doesn't seem to be, I don't know, I don't sense the police are acting with great integrity. Uh, it seems like a stacked deck to have this uh, this police chief, you know take it to a grand jury we don't know who those grand juries are remember in a grand jury proceeding there's no judge and there's no defense attorney the prosecutors call whatever witnesses they want they ask them whatever they want um it's a very one-sided affair and something tells me that they're not going to want this police officer charged you know i know what i've seen on television and i'm very disturbed by uh, by the fact that this young man was, was shot to death by a police officer based on what I've seen and based on what so many witnesses have said, including some witnesses from outside the community who made some uh, very, very disturbing comments about what they saw the police officer do. So police officers have a tough job. You know, they put their lives in their hands when they walk out the door every day. You can't minimize, you know, the dangers they face and the fact that that they don't react quickly. Sometimes they can lose their life or their colleagues can lose their life. By the same token, they can't act recklessly and abuse their power and their authority and, and abuse the weaponry that they have. And it seems to me that just something doesn't smell right about this shooting. That's all I can tell you.
2: Now I I was telling you about that documentary that I saw and I think you said that in some cases the uh poor black people will get charged quicker than a rich white guy. Uh is of that accurate? Course.
3: I, it is. It is. You know, we uh uh you know, we are a society uh where people are constantly trying to devalue somebody else. We live in a society where people are constantly trying to, you know, look down on somebody. They want to think they're better than somebody. And, and, you know, there's discrimination between races. There's discrimination within races, okay? Discrimination, you know, between economic groups. There's discrimination within economic groups. And one of the great things about human beings is that they, they, they have the capability to rise above this, this problem, but I believe that uh, that a low-income person of color has a much better chance of being charged in America than a white person who's affluent. I totally believe that. You know, young black and brown children are killed, you know, in Los Angeles, in some of the poorer neighborhoods, some of the gang-infested neighborhoods. They don't get headlines. If a rich white kid in Beverly Hills gets killed, it'll be a major story, you know? Um and that yeah. goes on to this day. That goes on to this day. We devalue others because of their skin color and because of their economic status, and that's wrong. So the likelihood of uh, of escaping prosecution uh, increases, in my opinion, with affluence and with uh, with white skin color. I do believe that.
2: Okay, I do want to play one last clip, and then I'll let you go. Uh, this is courtesy of Luna Joe, Testimony of Gavin Arvisio day three and four. Just was to a couple minutes, and then I want to get your take on the other side.
0: Today the defense is expected to finish questioning Jackson's young accuser. This after the team dropped a bombshell Monday, admitting he told a school official that Jackson never touched him. CBS News correspondent Vince Gonzalez reports. <laughs>
7: With fans cheering in falsetto, Michael Jackson, who was almost thrown in jail last week, arrived early Monday for his trial on molestation charges. In court, the singer showed no emotion as his young accuser admitted he twice told a dean at his old middle school, Jeffrey Alpert, that Jackson never touched him. The teen said, quote, I told him that Michael didn't do anything to me. This investigation has been going on for more than two years. But the prosecution reportedly first interviewed Albert only on Saturday, nearly two weeks into the trial. Nothing good came of this day for prosecutors, not a single thing. Defense attorney Tom Mesereau also went through the boy's school records, pointing to a series of teachers who called him disruptive, defiant, and strong-willed. One teacher even wrote he had good acting skills. He does not come off as a victim. He comes off as someone who is much more likely to victimize someone else. Everyone knew this was crucial, and the crucial witness comes off very well for the defense and not so well for prosecutors. The teen also made some inconsistent statements, but then so have people in the Jackson camp. Last week, when the singer was a no-show in court... One of his lawyers blamed a fall. He tripped this morning and he fell in the early morning hours while he was getting dressed. His back is in terrible pain. On Monday, Jackson's spokeswoman seemed to blame a bad mattress.
0: That morning when he awakened, he couldn't even walk or move his back.
7: But as he left court, Jackson seemed better and pleased. did a great job. Vince Gonzalez, CBS News, Santa Maria, California.
2: Okay, Tom, so does that bring back any memories and if so, can you share it uh, about that I'm not saying he wasn't uh, with the school official, et cetera, and a video of course was courtesy of luna joe sixty seven
3: well uh, again, Luna Joe does a fabulous job documenting and documenting and memorializing you know these important uh you know historical chapters in in the life of Michael Jackson, but it does bring back some interesting memories because I remember uh cross-examining Gavin Arviso, And, you know, criminal offense lawyers are taught to be very gentle with with children. Uh, The feeling is that uh, if you're too harsh uh, or too aggressive, that um, you'll look like a bully. And I had never spoken to him, um, you know, before he got on the stand. And my intuition when I saw him was, you know, this is not a child. This is a brat. This is, you know, someone who's thrilled to be here, happy to get all this attention. And who I don't think is telling the truth. So I went after him with hammer and tongs, and um, you know this this you know gentle sort of nice kid that the prosecutor tried to portray uh, changed his uh, his mannerisms tremendously. His demeanor changed, his attitude changed, and uh, he got feisty and I thought His True Colors came out, and fortunately the jury never believed them.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, and this idea that he told the the school and the time, the, there was different time things. Uh, you know, a lot of people, they, they just hear the verdict and they hear what they want to hear, and, you know, when you actually hear some things uh, that women show documents, you know, there is another side to the story. So I thought that was uh, very important, uh, you know, that that came out, and that people could
3: do yeah. that. Yes, as I recall, that uh, that teacher tried to contact me uh, not long before the trial uh, to let me know what had happened, as I recall, or else he had someone else call me. But uh, we disclosed that witness fairly close to the trial, so we're calling him. And, of course, uh, what, what happened, a lot of people don't know this, but in my opinion the prosecution was trying to intimidate witnesses uh so they wouldn't help the really? defense they 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 would send a bunch of sheriffs to interview people uh they would be intimidating they would be um you know just uh, it, it was a tactic that really upset me and they would send the santa barbara county sheriffs into los angeles county You know, and uh, I think they were very, uh, I just, this is just my opinion. You know, they'll they'll probably give you a different explanation, but I think they were trying to scare people away from helping Michael Jackson. That's why they charged him with conspiracy, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, you know, he was the only, you know, so-called conspirator in the conspiracy that was charged. You know, how can you have a conspiracy and you only charge one person? Everyone else they called an unindicted co-conspirator, which forced them to get lawyers. You know, any good lawyer is going to tell, you know, your client, don't talk, because if you, if you come forward and testify or if you talk, you may get charged. So they wanted these people to, to hire lawyers. They wanted them to not cooperate with the defense. They didn't want them to testify. They wanted to scare people away. To me, that was one of their main purposes uh, with the conspiracy charge, which was completely bogus like everything else.
4: Uh, no,
2: no, no question. A, a Twitter comment just came in from Jay. It says, uh, "Is it true that you were going to call Gavin, the mother, back for the servant rebuttal once you found out that the prosecution was going to uh, had the, the opportunity to play the uh, uh, the fifteen minute interview uh, of Gavin Arvizu?"
3: That's uh that's an interesting question because uh, you're bringing back all memories again. We informed the prosecution <laughs> that we were that we were going to recall them, and uh, the prosecution, you know, I'm told, spent all night with them trying to prepare them for, you know, being recalled as witnesses. And then I got up and said, uh, we're not going to call them. And I saw and just look pale as a ghost because I think they had spent all night preparing them, uh, thinking that they were going to, um, you know, be able to get up and uh, and and repair some of the damage that was caused when they were. Cross examined the first time they testified. And when I said, uh, you know, no further witnesses, you know, it just Sneddon looked like somebody had run over him, you know, like a truck.
1: Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I got one last one. Chad for Twitter writes uh, uh, The prosecution promised that they would call somebody from uh, Neverland that was a security guard, I think Chris Carter. Uh, and he was supposed to be a quote explosive uh, witness for the prosecution, and
3: they never called him. Is that true? That's true. That's true. Carter, I think, was in. I, you know, I I can't remember exactly the situation, but I think Carter may have been may have been arrested at, at that point. May have been in jail somewhere. It may have been Arizona or somewhere or Las Vegas. I just can't remember. But I was told that he was not going to cooperate with them.
2: Okay, and this is definitely the last one uh, from Twitter. They want to know, Tom, we've heard so many different things about the 93 case. Uh, Did it match? Did it not match? What is your understanding uh, in terms of did Jordan Chandler's uh, description match up with uh,
3: Michael Jackson? It did not. It did not. Um, you know again I wasn't in the case at that point uh, I learned all this you know in the 2004-2005 case but uh, the information that I saw said that he had um, uh, you know he made a comment about whether or not Michael Jackson was circumcised and it turned out to be completely wrong oh okay
2: because some people had it that, that that it was true some people like Diane Diamond and uh, people like that said, yes, it was an accurate description. Lisa Bloom said it was. We actually watched the uh, video. Um, they, should, they Lisa says, quote, uh, they should introduce evidence that the boy accurately described Michael Jackson, but uh, you're saying it's not
3: true from what you it's understand. Not tr- it, it, it's not true. He did not accurately describe Michael Jackson. You know, Michael had spent time at that home. The family invited him over, um, and, you know, maybe maybe he was seen dressing or showering. I don't know. Um, uh, he tried to convert this into some type of, you know, molestation story, which was, in my opinion, utter nonsense, but the, the, the description was not accurate.
2: Welcome to have you uh, and Joey Jackson, I mean two icons, on my uh, Season 3 show. It was just an honor. I thank you so much. Uh, I just asked you earlier, to, um, I want to give out two two uh, free uh, autographs from you. For, for the person that emailed me at KingJordan2K9 at AOL.com. And Tom, you've agreed that you will mail it uh I'll give you the address or you will you'll mail it to me or something like that.
3: Yes, I'd be happy to. Be <laughs> honored to. And thank you thank you for having me on your show. You always do a great service to the Michael Jackson community, the Michael Jackson fans. You you do your homework and you dig into issues in a in a much more in depth way than most people do. And I think you're a great credit to uh to all of us and uh I hope you do great in your show and your career, and uh, it's an honor to be invited on your show. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you. It was great having you and Joey. It was uh, just a uh, uh, radio holly, if you will.
3: <laughs> well, thanks, so, uh, thanks I will so speak to you, too. Real good.
2: Thank okay, you, Tom. Okay. That was the legendary defense attorney, Tom Mesereau, uh, for the first time only, Uh first time ever, please email me uh email me with uh the word saying first time ever and then email that to kingjordan two K nine at AOL dot com. The first two people with their names and addresses I will email uh I will mail out a uh a copy of that too. Also I wanna give about uh some plugs here m j dot com check that out that is an awesome awesome website um of course uh in association with she does all my great videos she uh what she's she just did an awesome video what did happen to michael jackson after the trial you need to go check that out i'm talking about luna joe sixty seven uh check out her um there's uh, a lot of uh, good stuff. Also, uh, Joey Jackson, wow. It really was awesome to have uh, both of them on. And uh, most importantly, I want to thank you, the fans, for sticking by with me. I and uh, I'm uh, I am not feel like this. I'm going to Follow us on Twitter at Mr. King Jordan, King Jordan, Facebook.com, dot King Jordan
1: Radio. Hello August Moon, we are the stars of the night. It's been cloudy all night. And the weatherman said, If you're not well, stay in bed. Cause I've been feeling down in blue, and it's cloudy in my head. Instead of going out to some restaurant, I stay home.
0: Jackson's album, Escape, came out this year. I know. Year.
8: I've been listening to it this morning. I'm
0: so excited about a new Michael Jackson song. And I heard that, I
8: heard he was like a big inspiration for you. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. I mean, like, uh, I was raised on Michael. I had like, I had like one CD in my car growing up. That was, my mom would drive me everywhere. So in in her car, we had one CD. That was Michael Jackson' Greatest Hits. That Are you it. serious? So I was like, since I was a little boy, that's the only CD we had. I listened to it.
0: Well, I saw a little. I, lo- I saw a little something on Instagram. I, clearly, he is one of your favorites because I caught you moonwalking on
8: Instagram.
0: Did you? We <laughs> and it actually was a really smooth.
1: <laughs>
8: I think we were walking out of Facebook, and I was stoked that I met all the guys from Facebook. Ain't not that cool? Uh, yeah, it was fun, man. Like, they're really, they're dope. I really had a good time that day. You were at Facebook? Yeah. we at f- Facebook? Went to Facebook just because, um, I don't know, I'm starting to use social media more, and um, they're, like, a really awesome company. Like, they really do a great job promoting our film. i so. They're, like, the best
0: company to be involved with. They're I know. When really we
8: were there, It's like it was like paradise. It was, like, yeah, it was like a young generation of geniuses. So was super cool. Well, so I just decided to moonwalk out. You That's know what, watch should I, I walk regular? I can't cutting. do Facebook, so I just moonwalked out.
0: Moonwalked out the joint. Did you ever meet Michael?
8: Jackson? <laughs> you know, I never I never did meet him. But did I, did I tell you about Michael Jackson? Please. No. Okay, so Kenny Ortega, uh, who directed High School Musical, um, was friends with Michael. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked a lot about him. Right. And I, like, idolized Michael. When I was a little boy. But Kenny knew that. One time I was at dinner um, in France with the cast of High School Musical. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a long table. We were all sort of celebrating High School Musical 3. The whole cast was there. And Kenny got a phone call from the other end of the table. And he answers it. And then he looks at me from across the table. And I just know something's up. I don't know what's up. But he goes, I got somebody who wants to talk to you. And he goes, I'm like, come here, Zach. And he pulls me over and puts me on the phone. Look, I'm getting nervous just listening to the story. I know. And I, and I grab the phone. And I go, hello? And he goes, who's this? I said, it's Zach. And he goes. Oh, uh, this is Michael. Hi. And I'm like, immediately, I just start crying. Like, I can't say it. I literally, like, I don't know what to say. Like, my mouth won't, I'm just go- I have so much I want to, you're the reason I love, me. I don't know, I can't talk. And he's like, I start, like, crying.
1: You were crying? Literally,
8: and it was a short conversation because he goes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I hang up and, like, hand the phone back to Kenny, and Kenny's going, like, wow, you messed that up. Um, <laughs> And, like, so I'm going, like, oh, man, I just messed that up so bad. But I was still, like, I just got to talk to Michael. Of course. Well, then Kenny, like, the phone rings again.
1: Oh, come and on, Kenny.
8: Kenny. Kenny picks it up, and he goes, oh, yeah, sure, Michael, sure. And he goes, Zach, come here. And I go... And he hands me the phone back, and Michael picks up, and he goes, wait, is this Zach? And I go, yeah. And he goes, Zach, hi. I didn't know who I was talking to. And I go, you know who I am? And he goes... Yes, I love you. And I'm like, oh, my God, don't say that to me. Don't say that to me. Like, you're the reason I'm in music. You're the reason I do what I do. You've been the inspiration to me since I was a little boy. You are, you taught me soul magic. You're why I do this. Like, I love you. And, like, I started crying again. Oh, my And God. then, uh, literally, I had to leave the room. Like, everybody was laughing. And, and, and um, he said... Then he started crying, and uh, he said... Michael
0: Jackson started crying? We
8: were both crying for like a minute. (laughs) To each other, like, uncontrollably. (laughs) This is an embarrassing story. And uh, then he said, he said, Zach, dreams really do come true. You know what? Oh they I do. And I I literally, I said, you can't say that to me, man. (laughs) You can't say that to me, and I just... I I will never forget that. It was the best that day. That is amazing. Of my life.